Welcome. You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hello, this is Roger Baker, and welcome to this podcast of articles from Sky and Telescope, brought to you by Airs LA. Today's articles are from the January 2022 edition. In today's podcast, we'll be taking a look at News Notes, which are various news articles from the world of astronomy. Next, many happy returns. Venus's eight-year cycle has the author dreaming of 2029. Written by David Grinspoon. Next, the Noble Hyades. The nearest open cluster is a naked eye delight. Written by Fred Schaff. Next, monitor Jupiter for planet strikes. Amateurs keep catching objects hitting Jupiter, and you can too. Written by Thomas A. Dobbins. Next, the Comet Highway. A region between Jupiter and Neptune serves as an on-ramp for icy bodies entering the inner solar system. Written by Catfolk. Next, Mercury, Venus, and Saturn slip away. A quartet of bright planets crowd the southwestern horizon at dusk. Written by Gary Saronic. Next, Bowling for Borelli. January has a bite to it, but you can bite back by checking out a periodic comet. Written by Bob King. Next, Ion Iris and Moonless Quads. Written by Bob King. And finally, Savoring Space and Time. Despite its ravages, the pandemic gave many of us a pair of precious gifts. Written by Jane Green. And now, on to today's podcast from Sky and Telescope. News Notes Black Holes Shredded Star Reveals Elusive Middle-Mass Black Hole Astronomers have used the death of a star to uncover details about a black hole that weighs in between stellar-mass black holes and the leviathans that lurk in massive galaxy centers, Observers have found a few dozen candidate intermediate-mass black holes with masses equivalent to tens of hundreds of thousands of suns, but we know next to nothing about them. Shisheng Wen and colleagues have now taken a closer look at one of those candidates. The middling black hole appears to sit in a star cluster near a galaxy about 740 million light-years away, in the constellation Aquarius. Normally, the black hole is invisible, but astronomers spotted it when it tore up and swallowed a star skirting itself in the glowing debris and lighting up in an event dubbed 3XMMJ215022.4-055108. As this tutu of hot gas swirled around and fell into the black hole, it heated up, emitting X-rays. The team used observations spanning 12 years from the XMM Newton and Chandra X-ray space telescopes to watch the cataclysm unfold. Using an approach originally designed for stellar-mass black holes, the team calculated this heftier black hole's approximate mass and spin. 
20,000 suns and 80% of the maximum, respectively. The results appear in the September 10th Astrophysical Journal. Astronomers have used star-shredding calamities, called tidal disruption events, to measure supermassive black holes' spins before, but they've never done it for an intermediate-mass black hole. What's truly curious about this result, though, is the value of the spin. A black hole spin can tell us how it grew, but the team has no good explanation for the observed value. The spin is slightly too high to match what's expected if the black hole was made by merging smaller ones, far too high for the black hole to have grown by munching intermittent gas snacks, yet too low to have grown by eating a steady stream of gas. Wind personally favors either a runaway collision of stars or direct collapse, in which a large, pristine gas cloud crumples in on itself. The black hole has the right mass to fit in the direct collapse scenario which vies with a couple of others as a favored origin for black hole seeds in the early universe. Future Arosita X-ray observations will help the team find more events like this one. Mars The red planet hosted ancient supervolcanoes. Orbital images suggest explosive volcanoes once tore apart the surface of Mars, spewing tons of ash and noxious gases into the atmosphere billions of years ago. Scientists already knew that Mars was volcanically active early on, but evidence for explosive volcanoes was missing, leading some to think the planet only produced oozing, shield-type volcanoes. Now, researchers examining the rugged terrain of Arabia Terra have found massive deposits of buried volcanic ash associated with giant craters in the area. Patrick Welly and colleagues used NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to study cliff faces, which revealed layers of minerals with a composition of chemically altered volcanic ash. Dispersion models confirmed that the distribution of the deposits matches that expected from explosive eruptions. The team described their findings in the August Geophysical Research Letters. They probably lasted for weeks to months at a time, where they're exploding and pushing out a bunch of material, Welly explains. So it's not just one explosion, but it's a series of sustained eruptions for many days up to months, perhaps. The researchers estimate that between 1,000 and 2,000 individual super-eruptions occurred over a period of 500 million years. Other researchers aren't fully convinced. We still don't know for sure whether powerful volcanic eruptions took place in this region on early Mars, says Peter Braz, who wasn't involved in the present study. Erosion and younger resurfacing events could have destroyed or modified the evidence about such activity. Nevertheless, Braz adds, this work is bringing us a bit closer to such an answer. It's showing us that a powerful and repetitive process has to be responsible for the formation of these enigmatic deposits. Perseverance snags first samples. NASA's Perseverance rover has collected two chalk-sized cores from Jezero Crater, the first samples to be cached on Mars. The cores come from a large rock dubbed Rochette, part of the long Artaby Ridge. The team announced the second successful collection on September 10th. The process was suspenseful because Perseverance ran into problems on its first sampling attempt in August. Team members think the rock crumbled to pieces, which is why the tube came back empty. It did, however, collect Martian atmosphere, so all was not lost. Based on images of the cores, scientists think the rocks are igneous, like basalts from ancient lava flows. The presence of salts indicates that water percolated through this rock long ago. Once the sample caches are returned to Earth, Scientists will look for liquid bubbles trapped in the salts called inclusions. They could provide a glimpse of Jezero Crater when it was wet and possibly capable of supporting life. The Perseverance rover carries 43 containers, 
with the aim of collecting at least 30 samples for future return to Earth. About 14 of these will come from ancient rocks inside the crater. Then the rover will begin exploring the fan-shaped delta deposited by the ancient river that spilled into Jezero. Stars Supernovae hollowed out giant cavity Millions of years ago, supernova blasts cleared a giant hollow in space, triggering the next generation of stars in their wake. Shamel Bialy, Remar Leike, and colleagues pieced together this remarkable story based on dust. Last year, Leike created an unprecedentedly sharp map of cosmic dust in the solar neighborhood using the distances to stars measured by the European Space Agency's Gaia satellite. By comparing stars' measured brightness with how bright they ought to be, given their spectral class, Leike could estimate the amount of dust dimming the light. Now, Bialy and colleagues have used the dust map to disentangle two nearby star factories, the Perseus and Taurus molecular clouds. They published the results in the September 20th Astrophysical Journal Letters. Astronomers have long suspected an association between Perseus and Taurus clouds. Using tools to visualize the 3D dust distribution, Bialy's team showed that the clouds are actually on the opposite sides of a giant, empty cavity a supernova-blown superbubble 500 light-years across. Other data, including the emission of X-rays and an abundance of the aluminum-26 isotope, both coming from hot gas inside the shell, support the supernova scenario. I think that the researchers make a very convincing case for a cavity powered by a few supernova explosions, says Evangelia Tormusi, who was not involved in the study. The superbubble would have taken at least 6 million years to grow so large. However, if it were older than 22 million years, then the bubble would have dissipated into the interstellar medium. In other words, at some point after the existence of early apes, but well before the first humans evolved, a series of supernovae lit up this area of the sky, and now we can see the long-term consequences of those blasts. As supernova-powered shockwaves swept through the region, they compressed dust and gas into water now star-forming clouds, lining the cavity's edge. These new data provide the first 3D image of the long-held idea that the deaths of star can trigger new generations. Solar System Amateur Spot Impact Flash at Jupiter Amateur astronomer José Luis Pereira of Brazil discovered a probable impact at Jupiter on September 13th at around 2239-30 UT. Weather conditions were poor at the time, but Pereira decided to search for possible flashes anyway using the Detect software. The program alerted him that there was a high probability that he'd caught a collision. He immediately sent a message to Mark Delcroix, who helped create the software, for confirmation. Several other observers independently saw or recorded the flash. This is the tenth recorded impact at Jupiter, starting with the first one in July 1994, when fragments of sundered comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 slammed into the planet and left a trail of prominent dark impact scars. Initial rough estimates put the new impactor's size at 100 meters, or 328 feet. But there were no reports of dark impact scars following the flash. Mush balls might fall on the giant planets. Hail-like ammonia-rich mush balls were first inferred to exist on Jupiter, plunging deep below the cloud bank in the giant planet's atmosphere. Now, new research suggests mush balls might also fall on Uranus and Neptune. Key evidence for mush balls' existence on Jupiter came from NASA's Juno spacecraft. First, it found an odd circulation pattern with little ammonia anywhere in the atmosphere, except along the equator. Then came Juno's dramatic close-ups of violent thunderstorms, 
which showed lightning flashing in the upper atmosphere. Lightning requires the presence of a liquid, so astronomers were baffled to find it in a region where temperatures are colder than minus 88 degrees Celsius or minus 126 degrees Fahrenheit. But what if water mixed with antifreeze? Ammonia is the best antifreeze you can get, explains Tristan Guillot. Last year, he and colleagues proposed that drops of two parts of water to one part ammonia could remain slushy enough to allow lightning. This mixture would form hail-like mush balls as it fell, drawing ammonia underneath the cloud deck. This also explains why ammonia is more abundant in Jupiter's equatorial region, where there are fewer storms. Recently, infrared observations have confirmed that ammonia is also rare on Uranus and Neptune at least as far down as we can see from afar. At the Europlanet Science Congress in 2021 in September, Gio showed that mushballs could explain this phenomenon, too. In fact, mushball formation could be even more efficient on the ice giants than on Jupiter. However, David Stevenson is cautious. He coined the term mushballs and worked with Gio on the Jupiter research, but not on the other planets. In the case of Uranus and Neptune, he says, the data admit alternatives. In brief, probe passes Mercury. On October 1st, Bepi Colombo finally reached Mercury and shot right past it. The joint mission of the European Space Agency, ESA, and Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency will ultimately whiz by the innermost planet five more times before finally entering orbit in December 2025. During this first encounter, Bepi Colombo approached the planet's night side and viewed a gibbous Mercury on the outbound path. At its closest, the spacecraft's trajectory brought it within 200 kilometers or 120 miles of the surface. Bepi Colombo is a stack of three spacecraft ESA's Mercury Planetary Orbiter, JAXA's Mercury Magnetospheric Orbiter named MEO, and ESA's Mercury Transfer Module that propels them. Many of the MPO's instruments were facing MEO to protect against damage during the long cruise, so they can't see space at all right now. But all of MEO's fields and particles instruments were operating during the flyby and studying the planet's magnetosphere. The transfer module's three cameras, generally used for monitoring the solar panels, also glimpsed Mercury during the flyby. Moon Landing Site Selected for Viper Mission NASA has announced that its Viper rover, set for launch in 2023, will land just outside of the western rim of Noble Crater, near the lunar south pole. The targeted study area covers 93 square kilometers, or 36 square miles. Viper is expected to traverse 16 to 24 kilometers during its primary 100-day journey. NASA based the final site selection on four criteria— Earth visibility, which is necessary for direct line-of-sight communication, access to sunlight to charge the solar-powered rover, terrain that's suitable to traverse, and evidence for the likely presence of water ice. Viper will search on and below the surface in at least six permanently shadowed regions, drilling and sampling in at least three of these locations. The rover carries three instruments to analyze volatiles, such as water ice and mineral composition as well as multiple cameras to capture the twilight landscape. The rover will follow several other lunar landers planned to launch in this time frame, including two NASA-funded landers and one each from Japan, Russia, and India. Sun-like stars eat their own. 
Some sun-like stars that were born in the same gas cloud as their companions show unexpected differences, perhaps because some stars eat their own planets. To understand the chemical differences between such stars, Lorenzo Spina led a team in examining the composition of pairs of sun-like stars. On August 30th in Nature Astronomy, the researchers report that in 33 of 107 pairs, one of the stars has more iron than expected. The other stellar pairs are all chemically identical. Iron is a refractory element that can survive engulfment by a star, and is readily available in rocky planet cores. Furthermore, the stars with higher iron abundances also tended to have more lithium. Stars destroy lithium in fusion reactions, but it's plentiful in planets, so this finding also supports the planet engulfment scenario. Based on the sample, Spina's team estimates that about a quarter of sun-like stars eat from their own planetary buffet, speaking to the chaos and carnage of planet formation. White dwarfs still burn. When stars near the end of their lives, they stop burning. Most stars shed their outer layers before collapsing into white dwarfs. With no source of energy, these objects should slowly cool and dim. But ultraviolet Hubble Space Telescope observations of two globular clusters, M3 and M13, show that some white dwarfs still burn. While both clusters are both about 13 billion years old, Xiang Zhen Chen and colleagues find that M13 has extra bright white dwarfs. That abundance, they show, originates in the cluster's larger fraction of Weensy stars, with less than about half the sun's mass. Even after they collapse, these stars retain a hydrogen envelope for later burning. About 70% of the white dwarfs in M13 are of the slow-burning variety. The finding upsets the notion of white dwarfs as forever cooling embers. Many Happy Returns Venus's eight-year cycle has the author dreaming of 2029. Written by David Grinspoon As I write this in September, Venus is wrapping up another magnificent appearance as the evening star. All summer and fall it has beamed through the dusk, as the sky has darkened before following the sun to exit stage west. It's a stirring and comforting sight, and I always look forward to another visit from this stunning old friend. Venus repeatedly passes us on an inside lane, swinging between dawn and dusk in its never-ending 19-month cycle. It approaches Earth in the evening, pulls out in front of us in the morning, then races around to come up behind us again. Our sister planet laps us almost exactly five times every eight years. A Venusian would say the passing repeats every 13 Venus years. This 8-13 to 13 mean motion resonance is not perfect. It slips by two days every eight years and its origin is not understood. But for millennia, humans have observed and recorded this repeating cycle. In any given year, Venus slowly traces out a peculiar shape against the sky. The exact pattern will depend on your latitude. Where I live at a mid-northern latitude, Venus in its most recent apparition first appeared in late April 2021, about 20 degrees north of due west. It rose higher each night for a few weeks before turning south in early June. In October, it will reach greatest elongation, lingering for a while into the darkness of the extremity of its orbit as seen from Earth. December will see it reverse course, heading north and plunging downwards into the solar glare to finally disappear in January. The whole thing makes a sort of lopsided tilted infinity sign, with the larger lobe disappearing over the horizon. This month, Venus again becomes the morning star, and it will stay that way until its next evening apparition starting in November. But the pattern then will be markedly different from what you see as a result of the ecliptic's north-south seasonal tilt. The following three evening appearances will also be distinct, tracing new shapes over time. 
Then something wonderful happens. The sixth appearance, beginning exactly eight years after the first, will repeat the first, and each successive return will imitate the one five cycles earlier. Thus, Venus outlines five distinct shapes in the sky, each of which repeats every eight years. The Maya and Aztecs had different names and glyphs for each of the five appearances, which figured prominently in their origin stories and calendar cycles. Today, with our libraries full of planetary data and detailed imagery from spacecraft missions, we're distracted from these splendid patterns. But bright Venus, undiminished even in light-polluted skies, remains there for any of us to observe. Having trained myself to be aware of these patterns, I often use Venus cycles to mark eight-year anniversaries. When I see my brilliant companion, I know that eight years hence, it will be right back in the same spot again. This year, I'm aware of something new, and to me, tremendously exciting. My colleagues and I have worked for more than three Venus cycles since the late 1990s, to send new missions to Venus, and now I'm finally on a team selected to do so. We'll build and fly a spacecraft called Da Vinci, which will be the first entry probe NASA has sent there since 1978. The launch is tentatively planned for summer 2029, one Venus cycle from now. This evening, I'll look at the planet and know that, with luck and perseverance, the next time I see it at this same spot in the sky, our little machine will be on its way there. David Grinspoon is author of Venus Revealed, a new look below the clouds of our mysterious twin planet. The Noble Hyades The nearest open cluster is a naked eye delight. Written by Fred Schaff Last month, I called the Pleiades the loveliest of all naked eye star clusters. But a friend of mine asked... What about the high 80s? I thought about my lifelong love of that collection of stars and quickly came to this personal judgment. The Pleiades are the loveliest naked eye star cluster, but the high 80s are the noblest. The most prominent members of the high 80s outline the face of Taurus, the celestial bull. Depending on the time of night and your latitude, these stars appear as a glittering V or arrowhead. The southeastern arm of the V would be shorter without the presence of magnitude plus 0.9 Aldebaran, but the star isn't actually a member of the high 80s. In fact, at a distance of 65 light-years, Aldebaran is considerably closer than the cluster, which is roughly 150 light-years away. Nonetheless, the high 80s is the nearest true star cluster and three times closer than the Pleiades. The high 80s also appears bigger and brighter than the Pleiades. This can be considered as both a good and bad thing. Why bad? The stars of the Pleiades are close enough to Earth to appear reasonably bright, yet far enough away to crowd together in a marvelously compact grouping. The key stars of the Pleiades can fit into the low-power field of a small, wide-field telescope. By contrast, you need binoculars capable of showing a 5.5-degree field to contain the expansive Hyades. But when it comes to naked eye observing, the number of stars easily visible in the Hyades is much greater than the Pleiades. The five brightest Hyades shine between magnitudes 3.4 and 3.8, and another 11 cluster members are brighter than magnitude 5.0. That's 16 stars that you should be able to see without optical aid, even from a small city or a moderately light-polluted suburb. A total of 26 Hyades stars are brighter than magnitude 6.5, the traditional naked eye limit for really dark skies. More than 150 Hyades are brighter than ninth magnitude, and hence within reach of binoculars under clear dark skies. Not all the stars of the high 80s are crowded inside the V-pattern. 
The brightest Hyad, farthest from the main flock, is Kappa Wantari, a 4.2 magnitude star lying north of the ecliptic and the V. A scant 5.6 minutes from Kappa 1 is 5.3 magnitude Kappa 2, also known as 67 Tauri. The Kappa pair are one of several naked eye doubles in the cluster. The brightest duo includes the yellow 3.8 magnitude star Theta 1 Tauri, which shines 5.6 minutes from the orange 3.4 magnitude Theta 2. This pair is the next stop down from Aldebaran in the southeastern arm of the V. In the other branch of the V, the Delta 1 and Delta 2 pair are much farther apart, 18 minutes, and shine at magnitude 3.8 and 4.8 respectively. About 1 degree southeast of Aldebaran, you'll see Sigma Tauri comprised of blue-white stars of magnitudes 4.7 and 5.1, separated by a little more than 7 minutes. How many of these pairs can you split without optics? When I view the cluster, my eye is drawn to an extra line of hyads extending south-southwest of the V, transforming it into a Z or N. I was gratified to see Stephen James O'Meara also mentioned this configuration in his book, The Caldwell Objects. The Hyades cluster is listed as Caldwell 41. The middle-aged Hyades are much older than the young Blue Pleiades. Indeed, many Hyades have already evolved into red and orange giants. In about 50 million years, the receding Hyades will be a half-degree wide telescopic cluster, positioned a few degrees east of where Betelgeuse is now. Fred Schaff was delighted that asteroid 7065 Fred Schaff was passing through the Hyades just a few months after it was named for him. Monitor Jupiter for planet strikes. Amateurs keep catching objects hitting Jupiter, and you can, too. Written by Thomas A. Dobbins. For eight days in July of 1994, the fragments of Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 smashed into Jupiter, producing huge clouds of sooty particles that encircled the planet and lingered for months. Arguably the most impressive spectacle ever witnessed by astronomers, these events drove home the grave danger to Earth posed by comet and asteroid impacts and added a new urgency to determining the frequency of cosmic collisions. In recent years, a series of serendipitous discoveries by amateur astronomers has provided vital clues. Despite its lack of a solid surface, Jupiter is the ideal place to look for asteroid and comet impacts. With a diameter over 11 times greater than Earth's, Jupiter is a big target. And at two and a half times the mass of all the other planets combined, it is the solar system's major attractor for impacting bodies. Jupiter's powerful gravitational pull also accelerates objects to high speeds. Ignoring orbital velocities, objects strike Jupiter with roughly five times the velocity of those that strike Earth, resulting in impact energies that are 25 times higher. On July 19, 2009, almost 15 years to the day after the Shoemaker-Levy 9 events, Australian astronomer Anthony Wesley captured images of a fresh impact bruise as it rotated into view over Jupiter's morning limb. The impact itself was unobserved because it occurred on Jupiter's averted night hemisphere. Less than two days later, NASA's infrared telescope facility obtained the first images of this feature through an 890 nanometer methane band filter in the near-infrared region of the spectrum. Methane filters effectively block the sunlight reflected off clouds deeper in the Jovian atmosphere, so the presence of material high above the main cloud deck stands out. A dark appearance in visible light, combined with a bright appearance in the near-infrared, is the hallmark spectral signature of impact scars. The methane pictures showed the spot to be much brighter than its surroundings. In June of the following year, Wesley and others recorded the flash of a bright bolide above Jupiter's cloud that left no detectable mark on the face of the planet. A similar event followed only 10 weeks later, and a third occurred in September 2012. 
Four more have been recorded in recent years. All seven of these events were confirmed in videos acquired by at least two geographically separated observers, all amateurs. In the past, small impacts producing flashes lasting for a second or two were widely regarded as undetectable with all but the largest ground-based telescopes. But the modest instruments that today's amateurs wield have proven to be remarkably powerful tools. In recent years, the sensitivity, frame rates, and signal-to-noise ratio of high-speed video cameras employed by amateurs have improved dramatically. Higher sensitivity makes it possible to detect impact flashes using smaller telescopes, while faster frame rates, less than 30 frames per second, provide better temporal resolution of the light curves of the events, permitting astronomers to infer the nature of the impacting object, stony, metallic, icy compact, or icy porous, through its fragmentation behavior. With these impacts in mind, French amateur Marc Delacroix, Spanish physicist Ricardo Hueso, and John Warasidi Campio of the Center for Astronomy at Heidelberg University in Germany wrote software that searches for impact flashes in video recordings. Employing a fast and efficient algorithm based on differential photometry, DETECT is an open-source application that Planet Imagers can use on their own computers to identify impacting events. The program eliminates the need to perform a very tedious and time-consuming frame-by-frame hunt for bright spots of fleeting duration by searching for localized brightness anomalies and automatically generating a detection image and report. Using DETECT is one of the core activities of the Europlanet Planetary Space Weather Services. This project's website provides a tutorial for using the program, a download link, and an up-to-date list of results. The group has also analyzed data acquired during almost two decades of Jupiter observations containing more than five months of continuous video recordings. Scrutinizing this long span of data allows more accurate estimates of the frequency of impacts, though considerable uncertainties remain because it's difficult to make a statistical analysis of events that have been observed only a few times. Analysis of the light curves of the five flashes recorded between 2010 and 2017 indicates they were produced by impactors measuring less than 20 meters in diameter, assuming a modest density typical of cometary material. The energy released by these events is comparable to the February 13, 2013 Super Bolide airburst over the Russian city of Chelyabinsk, which was 30 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. A recent estimate by Spanish astronomer Agustin Sanchez La Vega of the impact rate of objects in this size band striking Jupiter ranges from 10 to 65 per year. He notes that only a fraction of these can be observed from Earth for several reasons. Impact sites are evenly distributed over Jupiter's visible day and averted night hemispheres. There's only an eight-month observing window each year when Jupiter is readily visible. Most observations tend to cluster around the date of opposition. The visibility of impacts at high altitudes on Jupiter's oblate globe is poor. Impactors larger than about 300 meters, like the one that produced Wesley's 2009 SCAR, yield dark debris fields observable with amateur instruments that persist for weeks. According to Sanchez La Vega, these events probably occur once every 3 to 16 years and should be observed about once every 7 years. Jupiter has long been known as the amateur's planet due to its rich legacy of discoveries by backyard astronomers. Professional astronomers find it easier to collaborate with this worldwide amateur network than to persuade the communities that allocate telescope time to allow a round-the-clock long-term vigil for sporadic events. A growing band of dedicated amateurs continues to provide monitoring of Jupiter during each apparition. Thanks to DETECT software, imagers can analyze video recordings of the planet long after the end of the annual Jupiter observing season. So make time to scan your unprocessed planetary videos. You may have an unnoticed impact event in your possession awaiting discovery. The opportunity to collect valuable data and make real contributions to planetary science has never been greater.
Contributing editor Tom Dobbins has yet to witness an object hit Jupiter himself, but he enjoys vicarious views provided through the Internet. Before we go on, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. The Comet Highway A region between Jupiter and Neptune serves as the on-ramp for icy bodies entering the inner solar system. Written by Kat Volk When talking about comets, we often refer to them as visitors from the outer solar system or beyond. But not all comets hail from the same place. Some originate from the solar system's most distant region, the spherical cloud of debris loosely bound to the sun called the Oort Cloud. Such objects include the memorable recent visitor, Comet Neowise, which will not return for another 7,000 years. Many other comets, though, originate in the relatively closer Kuiper Belt, a population of small, icy bodies beyond Neptune's orbit. These comets become more frequent from repeat visitors to the inner solar system, with orbital periods ranging from a few to about 200 years. Before we knew about the Kuiper Belt, a group of these short-period comets puzzled astronomers. Referred to as Jupiter family comets, JFCs, due to Jupiter's dominant role in controlling their orbital evolution, these visitors have distinct properties. They generally take less than 20 years to complete a trip around the Sun, spending much of their time within the region encircled by Jupiter's orbit. A key trait, however, is the orientation of their orbits. While long-period comets zip through the inner solar system from essentially all directions, JFCs overwhelmingly orbit the Sun on paths tilted less than about 30 degrees from the planetary plane, and they travel in the same direction as the major planets do. What could channel comets into the inner solar system like this? And where did these objects come from originally? We know the answer to these questions. Pristine bodies from the Kuiper Belt slowly feed into a transition region between Jupiter and Neptune. Then, over astronomically short periods of time, some objects make their way inward to become JFCs. The objects making this transition give us an exciting glimpse of icy worlds as they transform from distant, primordial frozen bodies into spectacular active comets. The Cometary Cell Phone Lot In the early 1970s, astronomers were still actively debating if Jupiter family comets had been captured from the Oort cloud or whether another, then unobserved source region was needed. At that time, the only member of the Kuiper Belt we'd found was Pluto. In 1977, Charles Kowal discovered a harbinger of new outer solar system populations, 2060 Chiron. This little world is roughly 200 kilometers or 120 miles across and follows an orbit with a perihelion near Saturn and an aphelion near Uranus. Early calculations showed that gravitational influences from the giant planets could relatively quickly alter its orbit and send it elsewhere. Further studies confirmed that most small-body orbits in the giant planet region are only stable for about a million years much shorter than the age of the solar system. Some 15 years after Chiron's discovery, observers found 5145 Pholus, which has an orbit that spans from Saturn to Neptune. Discoveries of several more objects followed soon after. These so-called centaurs are small bodies that, like Chiron, all reside within the giant planet region on unstable orbits. Early observations of Pholus showed that its surface is extremely red compared with objects in the main asteroid belt and subsequent measurements of its reflectance spectrum, a more detailed measurement of the brightness as a function of wavelength, also proved it to be uniquely red and missing features commonly seen in asteroid spectra. Other centaurs also looked unasteroid-like. 
It was apparent that centaurs are only temporary denizens of the giant planet region, and their surface compositions don't match those in the asteroid belt. So where did they come from? In the 1980s and early 1990s, researchers had returned to the idea of a comet belt beyond Neptune's orbit, using expanded computational capabilities and improved numerical tools to show how such a population could supply Jupiter family comets. In 1992, the same year that other observers found Pholus, David Jewett and Jane Liu discovered the first Kuiper Belt object, KBO, residing entirely exterior to Neptune's orbit. This discovery, along with more than a dozen other KBO discoveries in the next three years, finally provided direct evidence of the hypothesized comet reservoir. Follow-up observations of the newly discovered centaurs and KBOs found more examples of distinctive red surfaces in both populations. This spectral information provided important compositional links between KBOs and centaurs to back up the orbiting model. It was becoming clear that Chiron and Pholus represented a new population of objects closely related to the Kuiper Belt. With these early KBO and centaur discoveries, researchers were finally able to demonstrate the path objects take from the observed Kuiper Belt through the giant planet's region's centaur population and into the JFCs. Our understanding of the detailed orbital distribution and formation of the Kuiper Belt has expanded dramatically in the last 30 years, but this basic dynamical connection with the JFCs remains. Although some KBOs have always lived beyond Neptune, Many of the objects in today's Kuiper Belt were placed onto their orbits when the giant planets formed and then migrated to their current positions. A variety of gravitational effects can change KBO's orbits. On long timescales, the chaotic combination of orbital alignments with Neptune and the gravitational pull from all the giant planets can dramatically tilt or elongate a KBO's orbit, allowing it to make closer and closer approaches to Neptune. Smaller gravitational tugs from the most massive objects embedded within the Kuiper Belt might even contribute to changes in neighboring objects' orbits, too. All of these factors slowly feed KBOs onto Neptune-crossing orbits over many millions or even billions of years. Close encounters with Neptune will then scatter these objects, sending some of them to more distant parts of the outer solar system and others onto smaller orbits in the Centaur region. Many centaurs will interact with just our outer ice giants, Neptune and Uranus, before being tossed back into the Kuiper Belt, but about half will continue their journey inward and become Saturn-crossing centaurs. Every time a centaur encounters a giant planet, its orbit either gets smaller or larger. The exact outcome depends on how closely the centaur approaches the planet and the direction of that approach. Only about a third of centaurs will make it through the entire giant planet region and past Jupiter to become JFCs in the inner solar system. The time it takes an object to either traverse the giant planet region or be kicked back out into the Kuiper Belt is typically a few million years. Charting the Territory Given that centaurs represent a middle state in the continuum between the outer solar system's Kuiper Belt populations and the inner solar system's JFC population, it is perhaps unsurprising that there isn't one single agreed-upon definition for what a centaur is. The commonly used definitions place centaurs as spending some or all of their time in the giant planet region, with their closest approach to the Sun lying exterior to Jupiter's orbit, but interior to Neptune's orbit. Most definitions also require that their average distance from the Sun be in the giant planet region. The strictest require that the object's orbit lies entirely inside that of Neptune. Depending on which definition you use, the current census of observed centaurs ranges from about 250 to 350 objects. On this list are objects discovered before Chiron, including 29P Schwachmann-Wachmann 1, which was discovered in 1927 and classified as a comet due to its bursts of activity. 
It wasn't until we had observations of more distant centaurs and KBOs that we were better able to recognize the centaurs as a distinct population. The centaurs provide a critical link between the nearby primordial icy bodies in the Kuiper Belt and the active, highly evolved comets in the inner solar system. Like their namesakes, centaurs are hybrid creatures, part active comet, part frozen planetesimal. They offer us an opportunity to watch as objects experience their first significant thawing since they were tossed into outer solar system cold storage. The partly cometary nature of centaurs became apparent within a decade of Chiron's discovery. Large variations in its brightness over time suggested it was venting icy material from its surface. Follow-up observations confirmed the presence of a coma. We now have many more examples of activity amongst centaurs, ranging from relatively quiescent outgassing to extremely bright outburst events, throwing off large amounts of dust and gas. Approximately 10% of the observed centaurs have confirmed cometary behavior, and this is likely a lower limit, because not all centaurs are amenable to a search for activity. The sublimation of water ice largely drives activity on comets in the inner solar system, but for objects beyond Jupiter, the Sun is too far away to heat up the water ice they contain. Other ices that sublimate at lower temperatures, such as carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, instead must contribute to centaur activity, although some of the observed activity is not well explained by just these ices. Astronomers are actively trying to understand the drives of cometary activity in centaurs, using both ground-based and space-based observations, as well as modeling and laboratory work. Another startling discovery is the presence of rings around at least one centaur. In 2014, Philippe Bragaribas and others announced the detection of a ring system around 10199 Chariglo. Astronomers usually estimate the size and shape of an object based on how much sunlight it reflects, yet these estimates are uncertain because they rely on assumptions about the albedo or reflectivity of the surface, which varies due to composition and other factors. Bracaribus's team, on the other hand, waited for Chiriclo to pass between a background star and us, briefly blocking out the light from that star in what's known as a stellar occultation. If we know the orbital position and speed of the small body, we can measure its physical size by timing how long it blocks out the star. If we measure this shadow from multiple positions, we can even measure its shape, as was done for the KBO Arakoth prior to its visit from the New Horizon spacecraft. For Chiriglo, the occultation showed equally spaced dips in starlight on either side of the central body's shadow, created by its ring system, the first to be detected around a planetary object that isn't a giant planet. There is some evidence that Chiron also possesses a ring system. Researchers are still debating how such rings could form and how old they are. Is formation more likely early in the solar system's history, meaning that rings can survive the trip into the Centaur region from the Kuiper Belt? We've observed a ring around another KBO dwarf planet called Haumea, for example. Or did the rings form after the objects became Centaurs, perhaps due to their activity? Road Trip there are undoubtedly many more discoveries waiting to be made about centaurs. Even at a very basic population level, there are a lot of things we simply don't know. Centaurs' wide range of heliocentric distances, from 5 to 30 astronomical units, has made them a challenging group of targets. Many of them are too distant and therefore faint for existing all-sky surveys to spot. Even the brightest centaurs move too slowly against the background stars to be easily picked up by surveys optimized for faster-moving near-Earth objects though archival searches through these surveys have yielded some distant detections. At the opposite end, KBO surveys don't detect centaurs easily either because they're designed to catch the slower-moving Kuiper Belt populations. Discovering outer solar system objects requires more than a single night of observations. 
Objects must be tracked over months or years so that their orbital path, and thus the population to which they belong, becomes apparent. But Kuiper Belt surveys often cover small sky areas, meaning faster-moving centaurs can move out of the search fields before observers can determine their orbits if special efforts are not made to track them. It is thus quite difficult to tell if our current centaur census accurately represents the whole population, especially in terms of how many objects there are of different sizes. We have to know what we can and can't detect in order to make accurate estimates. Measuring the size distribution of centaurs would help us bridge the gap between observed JFCs, which have typical diameters less than 10 kilometers, and observed KBOs, which are typically at least 50 to 100 kilometers in diameter. This, combined with a better understanding of activity in centaurs, will provide critical insights into the physical evolution of cometary nuclei from their primordial starts to their end states. In the coming years, the Vera Rubin Observatory's Legacy Survey of Space and Time, LSST, should dramatically improve our observational census of centaurs. Over a 10-year period, LSST will cover a large percentage of the sky down to limiting magnitudes much deeper than previous all-sky surveys. It should detect centaurs at sizes that overlap with the observed JFC sizes in a systematic way that allows us to better estimate the intrinsic population. The long timescale of the survey should also help identify brightness variations that indicate activity, yielding a new set of active centaurs that astronomers can then study in more detail with other observatories. LSST's increased sensitivity compared to our current surveys should turn up more examples of centaurs on the cusp of transiting to JFCs. Recent dynamical studies of the Centaur to JFC transition identified a region just exterior to Jupiter's orbit, dubbed the JFC Gateway, that the vast majority of impound JFCs traverse. Gateway objects have temporary, near-circular orbits in between Jupiter and Saturn that allow Jupiter to scatter them inward. This orbital region, expected to contain several hundred objects larger than one kilometer, coincides with the solar distance at which we expect significant cometary activity to begin in earnest. The recently discovered active centaur, Atlas P2019LD2, which should enter the JFC population mere decades from now, is likely just the first of many transitional objects we can look forward to discovering. These will help us better understand the early stages of cometary activity. Future spacecraft missions could also help reveal the secrets of centaurs. After the New Horizons mission, initial exploration of the Kuiper Belt at Pluto and Arakoth, and Lucy's upcoming tour of the Jupiter Trojans, the centaurs remain a key unexplored outer solar system population. In 2019, researchers proposed two missions to centaurs for the latest round of NASA Discovery missions. They were not selected this time, but perhaps centaurs will fare better in the future, especially if they are featured in the next decadal recommendations from the planetary science community expected in 2023. Whether through spacecraft or additional ground and space-based observations, exploration of the centaurs will continue to provide critical insights into how primordial icy bodies formed and are transformed as they journey into the inner solar system as comets. Kat Volk is a planetary scientist at the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. She studies the dynamics and evolution of small solar system bodies. Mercury, Venus, and Saturn slip away. A quartet of bright planets crowd the southwestern horizon at dusk. Written by Gary Saronic. Saturday, January 1st. As the month gets underway, early risers can watch Mars continue its journey past Antares in Scorpius. 
Antares is a notable conjunction made for two reasons. First, it's the third brightest star near the ecliptic. Only Aldebaran and Spica are marginally brighter. And second, its color is a close match for the red planet. On this particular morning, however, Antares outshines its rival by roughly half a magnitude. Can you see the difference? If you have a particularly unobstructed view toward the southeast, try to catch the razor-thin, 2% illuminated, crescent moon lower left of Mars and Antares. The warm-hued planet star duo were actually closest as December drew to a close, and now Mars is gliding away from Antares at a rate of about one-half degree per day. This rapid eastward motion is one reason why the planet remains stubbornly mired in the haze near the dawn horizon. On January 1st, Mars rises about two hours ahead of the sun, and by the 31st, that figure grows by only a couple of minutes. Talk about slow progress! Monday, January 3rd Fresh from its dawn meetup with Mars and Antares, the moon returns to the dusk sky where it forms a triangle very low in the west-southwest with the two innermost planets, Venus and Mercury. Of the three, the moon may prove to be the toughest to spot, sitting about 12 degrees left of the brilliant evening star. If you can't spot the thin lunar crescent this evening, try again tomorrow when it'll be fatter and much higher. The trio still form a triangle, just a different one. Mercury currently shines at magnitude minus 0.7, and Venus gleams at magnitude minus 4.2. However, the two planets are moving in opposite directions. Mercury is climbing higher, while Venus is losing altitude as it heads toward its January 8th conjunction with the Sun. Don't worry, Venus won't be gone for long. You should be able to spot it at dawn starting on the morning of the 10th, when it begins its apparition that will continue on through the end of next summer. As interesting as triangles are, more eye-catching is the luminous line spanning 40 degrees that includes Saturn and Jupiter, as well as Venus and Mercury. Think of it. A single view, you can see four of the five bright naked-eye planets. Impressive. Saturn glows at magnitude plus 0.7 from its perch near the middle of Capricornus, while Jupiter is roughly 20 degrees away and, at magnitude minus 2.1, utterly dominates Aquarius. Friday, January 7th. Today, Mercury reaches its greatest elongation from the Sun, when it sits 19 degrees east of our home star. This marks the climax of an apparition that began in December and is the first of four evening showings in 2022. Catch Mercury while you can, because you'll have to wait until April for another shot at it at dusk. That apparition will be the planet's finest for the year, and through the date of the greatest elongation tends to be the one that gets the most attention. More often than not, Mercury is higher above the horizon for a few days before or after that date. In this case, the difference is small. For observers at mid-northern latitudes, Mercury is very slightly higher at dusk on the 9th than this evening. Wednesday, January 12th. If you've been watching Mercury regularly, you'll have noticed that it's been getting closer and closer to Saturn. Mercury has been climbing higher while Saturn has been sinking lower, and at dusk today, the two worlds are at their closest with a little less than 3.5 degrees separating them. They'll be nearly as close tomorrow evening, too. The two are similarly bright, with Mercury shining at magnitude 0, 0.0 and Saturn at magnitude plus 0, 0.7. Given the pair's low altitude, 45 minutes after sunset it's just 6 degrees, you'll probably find that binoculars make spotting them much easier. After this meet and greet, Mercury will pull away as it plunges sunward for its solar conjunction on the 23rd. Saturn is moving at a more leisurely pace and won't have its date with the sun until February 4th. Later this evening, turn your attention toward the waxing gibbous moon, riding high in the south. 
About four degrees above the bright lunar disk is the clutch of stars known as the Pleiades, or M45. The cluster is also known as the Seven Sisters, as readers of Fred Schaff's December column will recall. Glare from the 80% illuminated moon will make the cluster stars a bit harder to notice, so don't be afraid to pull out your binoculars again. Saturday, January 29th. Let's wrap up the month the way we started, in the dawn sky with the moon and Mars, which are now joined by a post-solar conjunction, Venus. Of all the January solar system gatherings, this is probably the most striking. Certainly, it's the easiest one to see, apart from a bit about having to get up early in the morning. Anytime you have the moon and Venus together, it's going to attract attention, even if they're quite far apart, as they are on this occasion when they're separated by about 13 degrees. The scene is enhanced by the morning star's extreme brightness, magnitude minus 4.8, and the subtle beauty of Earthshine lighting up the dark portion of the lunar disk. And let's not forget Mars, shining gamely at magnitude 1.4, upper left of the moon. When we last looked in on the red planet, it was visiting Antares, but since then, it has motored eastward more than 20 degrees. Consulting editor Gary Saronic is more than happy to greet the new year with his solar system friends. Bowling for Borelli January has a bite to it, but you can bite back by checking out a periodic comet. Written by Bob King If you've ever gone bowling, you have a pretty good idea of what the nucleus of Comet 19P Borelli looks like. Up close, it's shaped like a bowling pin, except that it's composed of ice and dust and stands 8 kilometers or 5 miles tall. We last got a good look at this periodic comet in our telescopes when it came to Perhelion in May 2015. It does so again on February 1st. Borelli passed closest to Earth last December, but will reach its peak brightness of around 9th magnitude in early January, dimming slightly by month's end. Southern Skywatchers got their first good look at this dusty visitor last autumn, and now the rest of us can share in the icy bounty as the comet ascends from West Cetus into Pisces in the evening sky. Your best views will come at the end of twilight, which, coincidentally, is the warmest part of January nights. Based on past apparitions, the comet should exhibit a moderately compact coma and a short eastward-pointing tail. A 6-inch scope will fish it out, but an 8- or 10-inch instrument will better show Borley's classic cometary form. French astronomer Alphonse Borelli discovered the object on December 28, 1904, when it was also in Cetus and moving northward. Borelli worked at Marseille Observatory and discovered 18 asteroids and several more comets in his lifetime. Comet 19P Borelli orbits the Sun every 6.9 years and is a member of the Jupiter family of comets, a passel of frozen leftovers with orbital periods of fewer than 20 years and molded by gravitational interactions with the giant red planet. Borelli became the second comet, after 1P Halley, to be imaged up close when NASA's Deep Space One spacecraft flew just 2,170 kilometers from its nucleus in September 2001. Lawrence Solderbloom, who headed the Deep Space One's camera team, noted at the time that the photograph recorded rugged terrain, smooth rolling planes, deep fractures, and very, very dark material. The comet remains visible well into spring, though it gradually fades as it proceeds northeastward through Pisces, Aries, Taurus, and Auriga. On the evening of January 10th, Borelli sweeps 2.3 degrees northwest of the 10.9 magnitude planetary nebula NGC 246, also known as the Skull Nebula. The moon stays largely out of the picture from December 21st to January 6th, and again from January 19th to February 3rd.
Ion Iris and Moonless Quads Written by Bob King Ion Iris Binoculars are often underappreciated. Many skywatchers leap from naked eye observing to a telescope and bypass the humble handheld instrument. I've learned to utilize binoculars more and more over the years and can't think of a better way to put them to good use this month than by tracking down the asteroid 7 Iris. It comes to opposition on January 13th in southern Gemini, where it glows at magnitude 7.7. That's a little brighter than Neptune, which means Iris is well within reach of 50mm binoculars from a moderately dark site. Around opposition, Iris advances westward about one-quarter degree each night and ends the month three-quarter degrees south-southeast of the 3.6-magnitude star Lambda Genorium. If you watch closely, you can perceive its night-to-night motion even in binoculars by carefully noting its changing position against the background stars. English astronomer John Russell Hind discovered Iris from London, England in August 1847 during a systematic search following the discovery of Neptune the previous year. Named for the Greek rainbow goddess, Iris is the fourth brightest minor planet and has a mean diameter of 214 kilometers. Its reflective surface is pocked by craters, eight of which are between 20 and 40 kilometers across and bear Greek names for the colors of a rainbow, such as chloros, green, and cyanos, blue. These features were discovered with a very large telescope's sphere instrument. Iris orbits the Sun every 3.7 years and rotates once every 7.1 hours. Remote examination of its surface reveals similarities to LL chondrite, low-iron meteorites. Familiar examples include the Chelyabinsk meteorite fall of February 2013, as well as the asteroid Itakawa, which the Japanese probe Hayabusa visited in 2005 returning samples of the asteroid to Earth in June 2010. And now, you can grab your own retinal sample of iris photons. Moonless Quads Normally moonless conditions for any meteor shower would be cause to celebrate, but the annual quadratids are fussy. While up to 120 meteors per hour could be visible under ideal conditions, the shower's peak lasts only about four hours. If you miss that brief window, the rate plummets to about 25 per hour, though that's still a bit better than a typical Lyrid or Orionid display. This year, the quads are expected to peak around 2040 Universal Time, 3.40 p.m. Eastern Time, on January 3rd, which favors observers in Asia and at Eastern European longitudes. North American sky watchers will still see a shower, but one with the volume turned down. Because of the timing of the peak, it's likely the mornings of the 3rd and 4th will both offer good viewing. Watch between 3 a.m. and dawn when the radiance stands highest in the northeastern sky. Quadranted meteors derive from fragments shed by the small near-Earth asteroid 2004 EH1. It's thought the asteroid is actually an extinct comet that still exhibits occasional activity. Quads travel at 41 kilometers per second, and the display isn't stingy with fireballs. The annual cosmic sprinkle gets its name from the former constellation Quadrants Muralis, named for an instrument once used to measure the altitudes of celestial objects. French astronomer Jérôme Lalande created the figure from a smattering of unused stars between Draco and Buotis. It never gained wide acceptance and soon entered the domain of defunct constellations. But once a year, like Santa Claus, Quadrants Muralis returns to gift us a meteor shower. Savoring Space and Time Despite its ravages, the pandemic gave many of us a pair of precious gifts. Written by Jane Green Like many in the United Kingdom, I was furloughed for six months as a result of COVID-19. 
As a judge in the horse racing industry, I determine race winners in a high-octane environment in which errors with split-second decisions can cost millions. Governed by deadlines, scheduled, and endless thinking ahead, I frequently disappear up my own tailpipe. But lockdown changed all that, and two priceless gifts emerged, space and time. Instantly, empty days and nights stretched ahead. Freed from work, I had space and time to think about. Space and time. Untethered from early morning starts and relentless pressure to be at the top of my game, my foot eased off the proverbial pedal. I stayed out late observing, occasionally all night, for when would such a freedom arise again? Night after glorious night, I gazed into contrail-free, relatively unpolluted skies with tack-sharp stars. The Milky Way seemed more luminous and voluminous. Its rarely visible dust lanes now clearly threaded through its star-spangled length. When the moon emerged, she was brighter, her mare and craters wonderfully defined. I delighted in the phase transitions and in the earthshine that was stunningly incandescent. I even pulled out my trusty-but-dusty TAL-1 telescope, cleaned it, and aimed it skyward to track the traveling planets which, as with all else, stood out so much sharper than pre-pandemic. There I stood in magnificent isolation, in the field near our house, present in a way never permitted before, enjoying all the space and time in the world, in the universe even, following my own mantra, which is to look up, live it, and love it. It was magical. But I couldn't totally disconnect from the company's cyber hive, and I monitored horse racing matters at the workplace social media site. Here I read such comments as, I'm bored out of my tiny mind. I've got loads of time and nothing to do with it. I just can't walk the darn dog anymore. Reading them, I grew more saddened by the day. At last you have the space and time you've long lamented and not having. I inwardly screamed, look up. So taking action, I began posting photos of the planets. I received instant feedback and questions. Where are they? Can I spot them now? How did they get there? Soon I was overwhelmed. My equine-absorbed colleagues, many immersed in homeschooling, fired questions from their kids, some of whom were working on science projects but had no idea about astronomy. I moved from the moon, planets, and constellations to how the stars came to be, suggesting that my colleagues spare a thought for how small and transient their space and time are compared to the size and age of the cosmos itself. Families soon confessed to staying out late to watch the moon rise or seek out the planets. They posted their own images in a bid to share their awe and joy. The site became a much-followed hub for everyone to showcase their newfound time and space. I'm now back at work and bemoan the loss of these two treasured gifts. Once again, schedules, deadlines, and constant low-level stress are the order of the day. But a glance at the night sky is a reminder for all of us that we should make the space and time. Jane Green is a racing judge for the British Horse Racing Authority in England, but also finds time to write, lecture, and broadcast on astronomy. If you want to learn more about Airs Alley and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our webpages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast from Sky and Telescope. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind, low-vision, and print-impaired listeners. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Roger Baker, and until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>